All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucksters? What the fuck wads? It's me, Mark Marin. What's going on? This is my show, WTF. Thank you for listening. I'm glad you're here. Today on the show, Ethan Hawke joins me for a conversation. Ethan is in a a nice little film that I watched and enjoyed called Born to be Blue. Uh, he actually plays uh, the trumpet player Chet Baker, uh, which is no easy task. Uh, Chet was a, at that point during the, the movie where the time it takes place, Chet was well into being uh, pretty beat up and pretty strung out. And it, it is sort of a love story. Uh, I would say it is a love story, but it's a little dark and it's done uh, in a very sort of creative way, moving in and out of uh, a, a, a film that Chet Baker was supposed to be in playing himself. He may have shot some of it and and real time frame. And it was he did a good job. And Ethan's a good actor. He's a great actor. And he's been, you know, he's been around since like I feel like he's one of maybe a little he's a little younger than me, but he, I I feel like he he's one of those guys where you sort of see grow up, you know, and he's done some great work and it was nice to have him in the garage and talk to him. So look forward to that. I mean literally it's minutes away. Could be quicker for those of you who got no patience. Had enough of my shit. Let's get right to that Ethan Hawk chit-chat. Let's go over these dates again. I'm going to be at the Mission Creek Festival at the Englert Theater in Iowa City on April 8th. I'm going to be in Lincoln, Nebraska, April 9th at the Rococo Theater. That might be sold out. I'm not sure. Uh, on April 10th, I will be at the Arvest Bank Theater at the Midland in Kansas City, Missouri. That is not sold out. So if you didn't get tickets in Nebraska, maybe you want to drive down. Uh, six hours whatever it is i I know i'm going to be driving if i can do it you can do it was it four hours but uh either way you can go to wtfpod.com slash calendar you can get to the links you can get the links uh for these shows and uh you know i'm 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 working on new stuff you know that's gonna be a little mix and match of stuff i'm not gonna go way back but i'll go recent and i'll go new and I'll be I'll be happy to be in the Midwest. I've not played any of these areas before. I appreciate all the feedback for the uh, the reposting of the Shandling Gary Shandling uh, conversation I had in 2011. It is a sad time here in show business, and uh, I'm glad that I had that to give back to you people. Uh, if you had not heard it or you wanted to hear it again, he was a lovely man. And I was actually at the um, the comedy store last night. Uh, before I get to that, the Al Lubell episode. Many of you. You know, I posted the Gary Shandling thing because of the the, the loss of Gary uh, the day after we dropped uh, Al Lubell's uh, episode of WTF. You should listen to that one because Al is a veteran comic. He's an interesting guy. He's introspective in a way that um, is not always great. And uh, it, it's sort of a touching story. And I, I recommend that one if you missed it. Now, getting back to uh, to the loss of Gary Shandling, last night I was at the comedy store and... Um, uh, Bob Saget showed up to do a few minutes, and I talked to Bob in the parking lot. And he and he and uh, Gary had gone back to you know 1978, and they met at the Comedy Store. And and, and Bob felt compelled to uh, to say something. He needed for his heart and for his uh, for his friend, he needed to go up on stage to try to say something in that room where they met at the Comedy Store uh, in 1978. And he just wanted to do a guest set. Uh, he seemed a bit beside himself with uh, with grief uh, on some level, and and just with loss, uh, and and just a little a little jarred. And uh, it's always it's always good to see Saget. He's a great guy. 
But he got up there and he, he did uh, classic Saget jokes. And it was funny in a way, and it, it, there's no reason for it not to be funny, to see him try to transition on a Saturday night, you know, on a 10.30 show, no, no less, uh, in the original room, which, you, you know, that's a real show where you got to do real shit. And he was doing well. He was killing with his dirty jokes and his bits. But he wanted to say something about Gary that come from his heart. And uh, it was just interesting to see him for about 45 seconds struggling to make that transition and then making it, paying his respects to Gary Shanley in the, in the room where they met and, uh, and then telling a couple of his favorite Gary Shanley jokes and then go back to his dirty jokes. So it was like there was this reprieve in the middle of the Saget filth which is, I, you know, I'm not being condescending at all. I, I like his jokes, but you know, he he's notoriously a little dirty. Uh, you know, there's, you, you got your you got your five six minutes of solid, you know, Saget patter, full on filth, and then the the sort of like heart wrenching, uh, uh, short but uh, honest eulogizing of his of his uh, lost friend, and then right back into the dick jokes. So it was good comedy, and it was good. To, it was a, it was a great expression of. Uh, of comedic emotion that that it became more it really the idea the, the difficulty of of feeling the need to say something to honor somebody in the in a context that the audience doesn't know but you know he obviously set it up well but it's a comedy show and and then it, to watch him struggle and then fucking do it and he got off and he felt good that he did it and I was happy that he did it and it was great to see him it's uh, you know, it's hard. It's it's very hard, you know, as we get older and we start to see our peers passing, some tragically too early, which I would say is true for Gary. And, uh, you know, it just becomes very a thing that happens, man. And I know it's easy to say hey, it happens to everybody, but you know, and I'm no old man, but uh, but you know, most of it's behind me now. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. Thank God for comedy. Thank God for the comedy store. It was fun time there on Saturday night. I get to go on stage more, and I, there really is this time after I get done shooting the show, and I think it's the same with anybody who does anything creative or, or just works in general, is that when you want to find time to do the stuff that you, you, you know, you, you're used to doing or the things that, that define you or make you feel the best, it's scary when you haven't done them as thoroughly in a while. Like, I'm like, how the hell am I going to write new material? I got to do another hour. When am I going to, what the fuck? And then, and then I just start to get back to my life and what my life looks like. It's the, it, it's not great in my head, but that's just who I am, man. You know, I get, you know, I get up and like, I, you know, I, it takes me a long time to, to like, I do a lot of organizing. I do a lot of dishwashing and maybe some cooking before I get, you know, do anything creative or get out here. But all I know is that I was worried about doing stand up, and I just, you know, having been doing it only once a week for months and now I'm back in it and you, you just get your fucking legs back and you just start to push out the new shit. There's, you know, I don't ever think it's going to happen, but it always happens. I mean, for fuck's sake, I've done, you know, five CDs, a few specials. I've got hours and hours of material out there and they, it, it, it comes. But before it comes, there's that moment of like, is it ever going to come? And then you just get on, you just have that one fucking night, man. There's just that one night and Friday night, 
or maybe it was Thursday night. Was it Thursday night? I think it was Thursday night where these three pieces that I was sort of kind of thinking about together, just all, they, I, actually, I wasn't thinking about them going together at all. And they just wove together naturally. And I realized, well, that's how, that's how I do it. You got to get present, get engaged and, and make it immediate. Like it has to be talked about. And that's usually the way my brain works. Like right now, that's what happens on stage, and that's when the shit starts to happen. And these three things just wove together together beautifully. I talked about a couple of them here, but not not with the beats and figuring out how they live on stage and and how to you know kind of um, you know kind of expand them. And it felt fucking great because, despite whatever I'm known for, or whatever you know me for, or whatever you think of me, or my work, or whatever, you know. I've been a comic a long time and and that's how I identify myself. I'm a comedian. <laughs> and when it works and when there's that portal where you're like, "Oh, I can I can make things funny and do the, you know, do, do another hour no problem." Cuz you just get that freedom of mind. That's what comes back. Is the freedom of mind which for me is, you know, you know, wrought with a sort of torment and compulsive need to sort of poetically understand things and uh, get those down on paper and get them out of my mouth on stage to see if people you know see it that way or 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 are excited to see it the way I see it it's just been fun it's been fun it's fun to have a new bit and it's like that's sort of working and it's new and it just makes everything okay do you understand am I making sense I'm coming back to life after you know doing some i mean i was alive before but we had work to do specifically but now i guess i'm coming back to you know what makes my freedom of mind and my creativity uh, exciting okay i went and saw joanna newsom the other night yes i did for those of you who listen to this show regularly or are nerds about it or compulsive about it have listened to everything her husband andy sandberg was on the show and and i didn't know who she was i felt bad and then people were like how can you not know who she is certain people so then I got some of her records from Drag City. Um, they were nice enough to, to to give me a couple. And I listened and I'm like, I, I don't know if I can handle this. It's a little, it's a definitely, I got to sit down and do this Joanna Newsom business. You know, because it's very unique. It's very um, of her own. And, uh, it you know, it requires some mul- multiple listening. Then I, then I think I, it looks like I'm going to talk to her. So, I, you know, I went through, I got her new record. Then I went through all the old records. And then my... My uh, my girlfriend, Sarah Kane, the painter, was buddies with Joanna like a decade ago, back in the day in the Bay Area, and they, they hadn't really, they haven't talked at all really since then. So she knew a little about her, and uh, she actually had one of her self-release CDRs that you can't get on iTunes, so I listened to that. So I got all up to speed, and she was here at the Orpheum last night, a couple nights ago, Friday, and I went to see her, and it was like, She's from another planet, man. Some magical shit. That woman is is definitely touched. She had a couple cello players and a piano player and a keyboard player and her brother was on drums and they had, she had a guy that played guitar, banjo, bass and an oud or something, some unique uh, unique sounding almost renaissancey instrument and all of them kind of moved around and played different instruments. She had her giant harp. It was it was like and all the I was like what kind of audience is here? It felt like some it felt like a nerd hobbit movie. You know when people are, are a little too sensitive to to really live out in the world, but they can't really show that? They all came 
and 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 almost like worship Joanna Newsom. It was pretty stunning. So that was just an experience I had. Harp, though, not doesn't look like a practical instrument to me. Doesn't look like something you could be just like, uh, hey, can I come over and jam? I got to throw my harp in the car. The thing was as big as a car, but she was uh, just magical. And afterwards, uh, her and uh, Sarah were able to reunite for a few minutes, and that was touching. Almost made me cry. You know, when you haven't seen somebody in ten years, it's, it was emotional for me. Anyways, I'm rambling about Joanna Newsom. Eventually, she will be on the show. We will do that. Okay. All right. Ethan Hawke, and again, his film *Born to Be Blue*, uh, where he plays uh, Chet Baker, is now playing in select theaters. This is me and Ethan. So I watched um, the Chet Baker movie. Good job, buddy. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that couldn't have been easy. <laughs> no, it was not easy. <laughs> it was not easy. It, it's funny. Um, I don't remember the day that I agreed to do it. Do you, you know, like, I can't, like, how the hell did I ever agree to sing my funny Valentine on camera? Like, I, right. I don't know what possessed me. What, and to uh, do it like him. Anyway, it's just one of those strange things. That yeah, it slowly happened to me. I feel like. Well, I mean, whose project was it? Because it's a, uh, it's um, you know, he was a, a pretty, like, I think he was a glamorous character. But by the time, like, in in terms of like, you know, he was smooth and sexy and handsome and all that. But by the time you pick up your story of him, he's pretty beat up. All those days are gone. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you know he's got no fucking teeth. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> did you watch uh, that documentary? To of get... course. Yeah. 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 Well, that documentary, Bruce Weber um, made Let's Get Lost the year I graduated high school. And in a lot of ways, that movie was my first introduction, not only to Chet Baker, but I really didn't know jazz. anything about jazz at all. Right. And and Chet, in a lot of ways, is a good entry point. He's yeah. very accessible. Right. And, and like Nina Simone or something, it's easy, yeah. easy to enjoy. You don't have to have a sophisticated ear like you right. do with... Right, Coltrane or right. Charlie Parker or Miles Davis, right. or, and so um, you know my my relationship is actually kind of strange because Richard Linkletter and I, I'll tell you the truth. The truth is, I was here in L.A. Yeah. one time, and Brad Pitt apparently dropped out of some Chet Baker project. This right. is about fifteen, sixteen years ago, and uh, and this producer calls me up and says, "Hey, would you be?" in a Chet Baker biopic. And I, I was like, let me think about that. And I called up Linkletter and Linkletter and I went down the rabbit hole about, I mean, he was, his brain was so interesting thinking about Chet and really? jazz. And, yeah, because Rick had this great immediate hit on Chet Baker of what was interesting about him. And yeah. what was interesting about him is this detachment and that that's like, what is cool? Chet Baker is cool. What is cool? Cool is detachment. And detachment has a positive manifestation and a negative manifestation. Yeah. And like Rick was like, yeah, let's make a movie about detachment. Let's make a movie about cool. It'll be like, pull my daisy and we'll set in the 50s. And it was awesome. We got, we got all jacked up about this movie and we got a script together and we were trying to raise money. And it just slowly fell apart and never happened. And we never got to make the movie. And it left me with this, uh, strange disappointment because I had really worked hard on it and I thought worked hard what, on the research and, and thinking about Chet research makes it sound like I went to the library and but said, no but just getting in my, into it in my imagination yeah. you know it's the kind of thing I thought about for a couple of years yeah, all yeah. the time you're driving on it you're just thinking about it, I'm listening to music. music everything is an excuse to think about how I might want to inhabit that world and then it just went away it was really funny the, the script we'd come up with was an idea that um, 
uh, a day in the life of Chet Baker, the day before he tries heroin. Oh, right? really? That was yeah. the idea. And finally, one day I was at Rick's house and and uh, I started asking him questions. Well, maybe we should go to New Line or maybe they'll give us some money. And, yeah. And Rick's like, how old are you, pal? I was like, oh, no. You think I'm too old for this part? He's like, too old? For the script we'd written, oh. I'd, I'd, it'd taken us too long. And I, oh, got, right. I got too old. Right. Well, okay, so that's the point. Then 10, 15 years go by and uh, I get another script and I open it up and it's, you know, it's called Born to be Blue. And then here's Chet Baker again. Right. Only he's in his 40s. Yeah. Toothless yeah. and screwed up and yeah. lost. And I, I felt like this part was kind of chasing me down a little bit. And I almost also felt like I was reading the sequel to a movie I didn't make. Right. You, you, you know? Right. We'd started and, this. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I felt kind of compelled to make it. And I met this filmmaker, Robert Boudreau, who, who had written the script. And he was, it was clear to me that he was a little obsessed with this topic. He'd made a short film about Chet. He'd had m several different versions of the script and he started giving me different versions of the script and I was able to to read all these different uh, ideas that he had. He wanted had. you to be part of the collaborative process? Yeah, which is... If nice. Gonna, if you're going to go yeah. down the rabbit hole with the really scary part, right. you want to be... You don't want to be dictated to about how it's supposed to go. You want yeah. somebody who's going to understand where you're coming yeah. from. And I had... You know, Philip Seymour Hoffman had just died... Mm. And um, were you guys close? Um, he was a real hero of mine, you know. Right? I mean, there aren't that we worked together on before the devil knows you're dead. Yeah. And we met when I first moved to New York. He Phil was a guy when you'd go audition for a movie. He was always the reader. He was so. What do you mean he was the reader? Oh, like our, our, my screen test for. Um, Scent of a Woman, right? You know, oh, right? really? You know, so Pacino's not there for your audition. They hire some actor to read the lines, and here it's Phil Seymour Hoffman. Right? They, he, that was his job. That was his job. Yeah, and he did. He'd work for the casting agent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and and he was so serious, this guy. You know? Yeah, yeah. And and I and and he he wanted. I had a little theater company, and he wanted me to do um, one of his plays, and I said no, and and. Because I had my hands full of mouth, and he said, I'll start my own theater company. Right. What was that which, called? I think I remember that. Well, his theater, Your theater company was called Malapart. Right. And that's, um, and then Phil started his own. But anyway, we were friends for a long time. Then we did Before the Devil Knows You're Dead together. And he was, if you care about the New York theater scene yeah. and you care about movies, yeah. there's actually only a handful of people. I mean, he's a real, he was a real pillar of that community. Yeah. And he had just passed. And so. Sad. The notion of what drives really talented and successful people um, to do such self-destructive pain management, yeah. to, you know, was really interesting to me. What would you come up with? I mean, not not. I saw the performance, but you know, intellectually, you know, what what do you think was the weight of it? Because I, I think some people who are either blessed or cursed with talent are more sensitive than others and can't handle life as as well as others, but. Where'd you come on? You know, where do you fall into th that spectrum? You don't seem like a, a guy that would lose himself like that necessarily. I, that's a big question sure. because uh, I know that I've had a lot of people in my family who've dealt with real issues of depression. Right. Um, and, you know, from bipolar to schizophrenia yeah. to real serious issues. And I, I have often felt, I remember thinking that sometimes the most beautiful and sensitive people that I've ever met. Mm -hmm. um, my stepfather was really touched with grace in a lot of ways. He was, he is a very, he's one of those people. I almost, when I was a kid, I felt this way that um, 
maybe nature puts magical people every yeah thousand people or something <laughs> yeah. but they're a little too sensitive for daily life right right they're 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 put there for special occasions yeah <laughs> when when there's real need cuz he's a poet yeah you know and and Phil was a poet and I think Chet Baker in a way in his own his horn he was a poet this yeah. really really right. sensitive soul yeah um and they right. can't navigate the waters you know they don't have the right sense of humor about certain things they're very earnest usually yeah and uh i think my end up my hit on chet is his is that i think what he really really wanted was a a jazz life and Mm -hmm. he had an ethos that was a little bit different i don't think he really wanted to fit into society the way everybody else wants you to and and what he really really coveted was a life playing music and that was getting lost in the music there's that great scene in the dressing room with you and the uh, the manager mm-hmm. you know where you're, you're you're making that decision you know and it's it's kind of a what i love about the film is it it hits it, it drives to a central point which is where you can have a professional triumph and in, at the same time as immense personal failure. Yeah. People often think that somehow people they see are successful, whatever, that somehow they're succeeding as a person. Mm -hmm. And I made this documentary about Seymour and it's about this 88 year old pianist. It's called Seymour and introduction. And one of the things that Seymour talks about in a life in the arts is that if your art isn't integrated into your development as a person right then it's actually going to throw your whole life out of balance and whether you succeed or not you may succeed you know glenn gould being an example uh jackson pollock Marlon yeah, Brand, yeah, you yeah. know all these different people right. where, where they're letting their art and their neuroses drive their life yeah because what's most important to them is their art but they don't realize that if you succeed at it and lose yourself mm-hmm. that is you know is it really success and and, and that to me is an interesting question yeah, well, that but, it, but in that uh, in that equation is losing yourself actually becoming a transcendent artist, and is it worth that risk? Is that what you're saying, or is it? Losing- well, I don't know the answer to it, but I know right. What, I know what you're what, saying. Is it I'm- worth the risk? Like if you set, like if you look at someone like Chet Baker, like because that's a question you have at the end of that movie. It's like, all right, well, he did some of his best work after that, mm-hmm. and you know, he committed to a life of jazz and drugs. But in retrospect, uh, is he a sympathetic figure, or do we look at him as like uh, you know just a, uh, a sort of tormented genius who gave us this great gift? It's weird. You look at it as a person and as appreciator, it's a different thing. It's a different thing. If you look at it as a jazz fan, it's one thing. If you look at it as his son, right? You know, his daughter. If what happened at, to that kid? Did you? Did well, you... he's he he has several children and and a couple ex wives and yeah. And I imagine that there's some hurt there. Of course. And then like in that great thing in the movie, see, that's the other thing about sensitive people. And I think that you actually possess some of this, not in a destructive way that I can tell in watching your work, but, you know, that relationship with his father, you know, where, where, you know, it's sort of the key into why he's like that, you know, why the love deficiency can never be met. Like psychologically, it's sort of answered there, right? But, uh, But it doesn't... It doesn't necessarily because there's two ways to look at that shit. If you're not an artist, you go to therapy and you try to figure out. You know, you go go to Tony <laughs> Robbins or whatever to try to get your shit together. But if yeah. you're fortunate enough to have talent, you can drag everyone else through your struggle. 
<laughs> right? Yeah, you, uh, yeah, absolutely. Come through my pathos with exactly. me. You know? But like I noticed that about you. That was the one thing that was, uh, you, you know, when I watched, um, what I watched? Well, I watched Boyhood recently and I watched, uh, I always watch Training Day when it's on because I, I love that fucking movie is that somehow or another, whatever you've had your entire career, which is a, an access to vulnerability that you can bring to even the roughest roles is sort of a, a, an amazing thing. Do you feel that? I mean, like, because that role, in Boyhood, you know, I'm, we can come back to Chet Baker, that, you know, that was a, a very human and very, you know, sort of, you know, a, 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 a painful guy to play in how that, you know, he had to mature, you know, later than he should. And that, you know, when it comes full circle and, and you're sort of a stand-up guy at the end, that was pretty sweet stuff. It's very heartbreaking. Well, everybody likes to think this idea that we're, like, born done. You know, that we're somehow, that, or, or that we even ever really arrive yeah, yeah. anywhere. You know, I mean, what was interesting to me about Boyhood is I, I felt like I was being offered um, a job that no actor had been offered before, is to get to create a character, right? There was really no script. Rick yeah. was asking me to create a portrait of fatherhood and use time as clay, mm -hmm, right? You're mm -hmm. going to get to use, you won't have to act all this stuff. Yeah. And I had this vision when he was talking to me about it in my brain of, initially initially i'm talking yeah. about 15 years ago yeah. when we're sitting in a cafe my son was just born he's telling me about this idea that he wants to make this movie yeah. and take 12 years to do it and i was like well i really pictured my father in my first memories you know like around the time the movie starts six years old first grade what does your father look like in those memories to you and for me i have a very specific image of him and with that is very different than the image I have of the man who was at my high school graduation. And when I try to look at those two, I, I realized that he was growing up as much as I was. Right. And that became kind of Rick and I's journey with my character as part of that movie and what 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 we were do, doing with this. And this point that we're not finished. Uh, well, your parents were young, weren't they? My mom was you know, 17. My father was 19. That's was, crazy. I know. Can you imagine having kids at that age? <laughs> My, my. I got a 17-year-old daughter right now, and I she um, I hope she wouldn't mind me saying this, but she really wanted a puppy this year, and I, I knew it was a bad idea, but I, my mother said this funny thing. She said, oh, Ethan, let her get that puppy. It, it's 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 it'll it's the big if i just had a puppy i don't think i would have had you yeah i just i needed something to take care of <laughs> and so i was like i was like i the idea Sold. That, yeah i got that puppy man <laughs> so but where did you grow up well let's see i was born in austin texas um really yeah so you're texan well yes my my father still lives there and um but i really Grew up in high school, traveling around with my mom. And my mom, we moved to Atlanta, we moved to Brooklyn, we moved to Connecticut. Was she we looking for to... work? Yeah, well, she was obviously clearly a young woman, right? I mean, right. when 18, I was. 19, when yeah. they get divorced? When, how old were you? Uh, I, I was around three, so. Oh, so she was like 21. 21. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what? So she's just a kid. Yeah, exactly. She's still in college. Oh, my know? God. And um, so. But yeah, I grew up with her. She was, as she kind of was finding herself trying on different jobs. And yeah. we went, she was a waitress at Stratton Mountain Valley Lodge for a year. And for a year, I was like the greatest third grade skier you ever met. And then we left there and right. we went to Atlanta. And then Atlanta, I was, you know. And it was it. just you and her? Yep. Wow. So you were a buddy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's weird, those relationships where you, you sort of got to stand in. 
You, you know what I mean? Like I remember, because my mom was what twenty two when she had me, and my dad was never around. So you get this weird. I imagine extra emotional pressure to deal with the with the mom. <laughs> you really do. I mean, <laughs> many a novel has been written about I guess it. So. Yeah. But uh, so, how'd you end up in New York? Well, let's see. How I ended up in New York was that I was when I was graduating high school. I really was pretty sure I wanted to be an actor or sometimes I wanted to be Jack London. I really wanted to be... Out in the uh, writing about the wild? Yeah, I, wanted, I don't want to be a merchant marine and have adventures oh, right. yeah, and, yeah. And, and write about them. And uh, and so I went to Carnegie Mellon for a hot minute to study acting and that didn't go very well. I was mm-hmm. pretty unhappy there. And I heard about... Why? This, what happened? Just didn't... didn't You didn't like the system? You know what happened is for me mm-hmm. is college is a too much like high school. Yeah, I had this feeling when I finished high school that I was ready to be an adult and I wanted to have like adult experiences and and I was just a freshman again. Yeah, and I felt like I was just yeah. I signed up on a dotted line. I was supposed to be here then yeah. and there, and I just uh, and you know there was just the culture of everybody just drinking and. Um, not that I don't like drinking, but it just was just this haze of stupidity. Yeah. Uh, And I wasn't that interested. And I heard about these auditions for Dead Poets Society, this movie. And your mom was living in New York at the time? No, no? my mom was living in Princeton, New Jersey. Oh, New Jersey? Well, actually, she was teaching school in Trenton at the time. In Trenton, yeah. Yeah. My mom is a real kind of radical Eleanor Roosevelt type. She lives in Bucharest, Romania now, working for Gypsy Rights. Really? Yeah. She's really a bizarre person. (laughs) Did she Uh, remarry? She did remarry uh because you said your stepdad. Did she stay with that guy? No, oh. yeah, yeah. She she's been she's split from him and has a new. I have a new stepdad. Oh, now. good. Okay. She has she has her yeah. she has her eccentricities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the rotating stepdad. Yeah, but that sec that sec that first stepdad. He was the poety kind of sensitive yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. Do you still have a relationship with that guy? I sure do. Yeah, I, yeah. Because I I don't. My parents stayed together till I was like thirty five, and then they bailed. But uh, so I don't have these relationships with stepdads. This is interesting to me. Cause you, and you have a relationship with your real dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you only have one father, right? Right. Yeah, you know, right. there's there's only one that brings you into the universe, right, so to speak. Right. And, yeah. But you have a lot of um, guardian angels. You know, Absolutely. You have a lot of mentors. And, and for me, you know, often, you know, like people will either say it as a positive or they'll say it as a negative that I have tried a lot of different things in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I've written books mm-hmm. and I've, you know, acted in plays and directed movies and yeah. done a documentary and or tried mm-hmm. journalism and I've tried all. And part of that comes from my stepfather who had, he just didn't see any difference in the arts. He mm-hmm. really saw the whole thing like a big fist. And, right. you know, like acting is one finger and music is another finger and painting is one and sculpture is another. And they're all about this need to communicate with each other. With a fist. I like the fist metaphor. Yeah, it There's is. There's a certain yeah. fuck you to it. Yeah, it's, got, it's like the Hunter S. Thompson six-finger <laughs> yeah, yeah. fist, you know, right to your solar plexus. Yeah. But, in, 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 um, you know, my stepfather had that, exactly what you're talking about. And... Um, which is what I mean is a certain fuck you factor to it, which yeah. is that, you know, society, there's a lot wrong. Yeah, there's a lot sure. of games people play and there's yeah. a lot of lies and there's an obsession with money. And there's, uh, and he kind of very beautifully would see through that. But he, when I talk about sensitive, I'm not kidding. Like I was, it was the late 80s, right? When I'm graduating high school and he's the type of person that, um, you know, that we used, you'd see all the starving children in Ethiopia. Yeah. Right on TV, yeah. and then people feel bad or turn off the TV, or they'd send in thirty dollars or something. Well, he flew to Addis Ababa, 
Yeah. Right? That's what he did. He's like, I can't turn off this TV anymore. I can't be this person. Yeah. I'm just going to go there. And this is the guy that I was growing up with in the house. And he was a really eccentric person, which is, I mean, by that he taught me to play football and he taught me sports, but he also taught me um, a real love of the arts. That's an amazing thing. And, and he, I mean, and, but that's the thing is no difference. Music, acting, writing, poetry. I remember I was writing a, a this girl, I had this crush on this girl senior year I was graduating yeah. and I, I wrote her this uh, little kind of love postcard thing yeah. that I'd left out on the thing. And he, and he, he said to me once, this poem stinks. <laughs> He said, he said, you've only got a few moments in your life to yeah. be 18. Right. And you got to write a better poem than this. <laughs> he's like, you know, the, he's like, give her something good. Yeah. Write about her. Yeah. Don't write about yourself. Yeah. You know, talk about her. Yeah. Why is this poem to her and no one else? Right. You know, I was like, Fuck, that's a good idea. Did you do it? Oh, and it worked like <laughs> gangbusters, man. <laughs> But that's sweet. You're right about that, especially when I think that you, if your your parents separate when you're younger, there's almost a craving. Like my dad was fairly absent, but there's a craving for that guidance. And you're fortunate, you know, that you had another guy that you know came into your life. That I mean, because that sounds like it changed your whole way of thinking. It did, and then you know you get to be an. I- I'm raising two kids, you know, my two oldest are, you know, I'm split from their mother. And yeah. so I'm, I'm looking at this from both angles. And I, I really feel like I was able, my my real father is a very different man and has a lot to offer too. What's his trip? Um, he's a uh, mathematician. And really? Yeah, he's spent his life as an actuary and um, just really uh, deeply kind, deeply humble person. Organized? Incredible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like you know, almost the opposite. And he's got this, emotionally yeah. from and your so stepdad. He, and so he's had to deal with this artist's son, yeah. which I'm sure has been challenging for him, but he would never let on that right. it was. He's right. just very um uh a person of a, a deep and substantive faith uh-huh. and that guides his life. And he's really fun to be around because of it. Oh yeah. Uh, he's and, he's grounded. Yeah, very deeply grounded yeah. in that way. And what is interesting for me is I've been able to pull from these different Role models, yeah, yeah. you know. I mean, I'm, yeah. and and uh, mm-hmm. and that's what I hope that my kids can do too. How they know? doing? I don't know. The, when you're a certain age, it's a time to judge your parents by what they're not. Yeah, I'm at the I'm at the non-judgmental phase of parenting because I'm being judged. Right, right, <laughs> right. All of a by sudden, the older ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah, got yeah. one graduating high school, and yeah. you know, and I've got one who's about to be a freshman in high school. So you're taking the hit. They, yeah, they're, they're taking the hit. Man. <laughs> Dad is a phony. <laughs> It'll pass. It'll come yeah, back around. Yeah, yeah. Do you get along with her, your ex-wife? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Please, kids. please move on. <laughs> yes, I do. Oh, good. But also, I imagine that given that you started acting, because now we can come back around. So you leave Carnegie Mellon. You find oh, yeah. out there's a advertise. Uh, you, you, they're casting for Dead Poets. You hadn't done anything before Dead Poets, really. I had. I'd, I'd done some child acting. I did this movie called The Explorers when I was thirteen. Yeah. Uh-huh. And your mom was into it. She was cool with the. She acting. was not into it. She was really busy, uh-huh. and she just appreciated me being busy. Who took you into the city for auditions? I, myself. You took the bus. I took the train. Oh yeah, yeah. When I you took... were thirteen, fourteen. Uh-huh. Remember, uh-huh. you could do that. I know. And it's a little my, crazy. My mother told me as long as it didn't cost her any money, she wasn't going to pay for headshots or pay right. an agent or anything like that. But if I wanted to go on some open calls, I could. Yeah. And I had this friend of mine who lived down the street who had an agent, and so I'd hop the train. I'd hear about you know. Yeah. I'd hop the train with him and go on these casting calls, and one of them was for the Explorers. Uh huh. And you know, it. It's we were kind of touching on um, Phil. 
but you know that's where i worked with river phoenix um and in the explorers in the explorers and got to know him and this i think when this script arrived on my desk arriving right after phil had died it was hard for me to think about Phil without also thinking about River. And right. River was my first relationship to acting. Uh, we were learning about acting together. And you're both about the same age, huh? We were, yeah, we were 14 when we made that movie. Wow. And, um, and uh, But so I, that had been a little glimpse of my life, like a tiny chapter that I'd almost forgotten about when yeah. I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. And it had just been this weird... I, you know, strange, like summer camp experience yeah. that was different than the rest of my life. And then when um, I went and auditioned for Dead Poets Society and I got the part and that just kind of led me on the path where I find you today. Yeah. Well, that, well, that that's the other interesting thing is that, you know, having these, you know, these different role models as men in your life and your mother who, you know, you had, uh, you know, you were sort of, um, I imagine that if the relationship with your mother is like, you had to be aware pretty early that, you know, she was busy dealing with her own shit. And, you know, at least she gave you the opinion to, or the uh, option to do what you wanted as long mm-hmm. as you didn't get in trouble, I imagine. My, my mother placed a great value on independence. Yeah. It was really like, uh, she had a lot of respect for me if I just took care of myself. Right. She appreciated that. Yeah. And, you know, if I just... I mean, my, my <laughs> be a good kid. Be a good kid. She'd give me a, I kid, shit you not, uh, for Christmas, you yeah. know what she, she loved to give me? She, I would... The, tree would be lined with presents right? yeah yeah and and you get under there they're all library books oh really <laughs> stay home and read kid yeah and i had to return them <laughs> really that was yeah, your big that, test that was that she would always she'd get me she'd go I've to the library and get hilarious. like 15 books and yeah. wrap them and put them under and you know i'd have a month yeah and did you read them or did you just take <laughs> some, them back yeah some of them so after dead poets well that i guess that was the question is that now you're in this position to be having an experience with different types of role models like uh, who you're acting with. Mm-hmm. So I, I imagine, when did you start realizing like that you know you could learn from the people you were working with? Or did you? Do you know what I mean? Because you're working with Robin, you're working with that whole cast of kids that you know, are your age in that movie. Was it more of a feeling of like, I'm just doing my job? Or did you have moments where you're like, holy shit, that's Robin Williams and he's doing this thing? For me, it felt like um, Peter Weir... Was yeah. the director of Dead Poets Society? Brilliant guy, right? brilliant yeah. guy. Okay, yeah. so he's he's made, you know, Year of Living Dangerously, which was one of my favorite films. Picnic Hanging, Hanging Rock, Rock, yeah, yeah, which is incredible. Yeah. He made Witness. Oh, that's um, what a great movie that is. Uh, he made The Last Wave, right? He's, yeah, yeah. This is a major. And when I was in the room with him, it was the, my first experience with what it was like to be with somebody who was an adult artist. Yeah, and he was living his life in service of something larger than himself. Yeah. He was dedicated to telling stories and making movies and bringing out the best in others. This is a major heavyweight human being. Yeah. And I felt like I was meeting, you know, I, I'd studied Sam Shepard and I'd studied, you know, I'd read that Tolstoy. Age, right, yeah. yeah, that's the kind of stuff I was reading, right? And, right. and I felt like I was meeting an artist. Right, like right. An actual, like I'd, I'd heard about them in books yeah. and I'd read about them in the newspaper. Right. And this was a damn artist. Right. Here he was. Yeah, yeah, and, real deal. And he was, we were staying at the Ramada Inn in Wilmington, Delaware, and he gave all of us kids, I mean, this is the start of my artistic life, is, yeah. is that he gave us a challenge 
where you had to write your character's biography, which I've later come to find out that this is a very common acting exercise. But yeah. I'd never been in that acting right. class proper. Sure. And he said, you know, write your character biography. You know, so I had to write like, okay, well, I was born in this town and this is my favorite color and this is what... It, and you start collecting a subconscious that is a little bit different than your own. That's the right. idea. Yeah, yeah. And he would say things like to Robert Sean Leonard, who was playing my roommate, he's like, okay, I need to believe that you two are friends. He'd say to us. So I want to put a scene in the script that is going to be about your friendship. And he showed us the, uh, the schedule. And on Wednesday, the October 17th, we're going to shoot this scene. We're going to shoot it for four hours here in the yeah. day. And you are going to write it. Yeah. He said, you, you two are going to take, I need uh, three two-page scenes about friendship, yeah. about you two becoming friends, and I will film it on this day. I'm going to pick one of them, and you guys write it. And so, Bob, we're, we're 17, 18 years old, right? Yeah, and yeah. like this is a, the heavyweight human being saying he's going to film a scene we're writing. Yeah. So we stay up all night. We're working <laughs> on what could it be, what could it be. Finally, Overthinking it. Oh, overthinking it. We hand him in these you know, three different two-page scenes. And he looks at him and he goes, okay, I like this one best. We'll shoot that one. And he goes on the schedule and there it is, scene 52, part B or yeah, whatever yeah. the hell it is. And he films this scene. <laughs> and here's the funny thing. It's not in the movie. Yeah. He completely cut it yeah, out, yeah. right? Right. But we became friends. Right. It was in what I learned was a process that was going to become invaluable to me working with Richard Linkletter. Mm -hmm. Richard, people think um, when you get on a Linkletter movie that, oh, rehearsal is like, play practice like it is in seventh grade or something right, right. do you know and play practice with richard is something deeper and more mysterious than that which is kind of joining imaginative forces that the most important thing that really happens in rehearsal yeah is not that i plan to say this line when i put the coffee down on there it's that we're actually making the same movie and that we have this we start a collective consciousness yeah. so that the same symbols mean the same things to me that we're on the same as they do to yeah, you. Yeah. What I, when I make a joke, you laugh because right. we know what each other are talking about. Right, right. And then everything becomes easy. It's classic teamwork stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you, you learn this in baseball and sure. football and you know teams that achieve on a high level. You have to have a serious nonverbal communication. Right. And what Peter Weir was teaching me First of all, he's teaching me how to write by giving yeah. me these biography lessons, and uh, and he was teaching me how to what a what a cinema experience can be, because people love this idea that there's improvisation. Yeah, I've never improvised well when the cameras were rolling, right. but I can improvise really well in rehearsal. Yeah, and then I can rewrite it and restructure it so that the movie has the feel of spontaneity. Sure, you know that when you know the bits that come out of improvisation, you're like, it, I'm going to hold on to that. Exactly. Right. And you know right. Which, which ones to get rid of. Well, oh, before I forget, quick question. Yeah, like there were some weird things in the in, little moments in the new movie in uh, Born to Be Blue. That that I thought were great details. Like, uh, was you walking off with the plant? Was that in the script? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but you know, I read this thing. What I love. I was what I was doing. I was staying up all. What I was so fun about studying a really interesting person like Chet is like I could stay up all night reading weird books sure. and weird. And one of his friends is talking about one. Of, he was. Um, you know, like a, a lot of junkies, he was just always on the prowl. The hustle, on the man. Yeah, He's yeah. just hustling. He yeah. tried to leave every exchange with a positive. Right. <laughs> so I thought this guy in the, in the scene, I'm asking a guy for a favor and he turns me down right. so I steal his plant. And then the, the line after that is genius where where 
Like, cause like some parts of the movie with the romance, it's, it, it gets a little kind of like, um, romantic, you know, but the stuff like, you know, with the junkie stuff and, and that's not a negative thing, but like, I felt that some of the, the details around what you did with the character was kind of interesting. Cause then the manager guy goes, is she really pregnant? And you go, no. And he goes, well, that's a start. Yeah. Like it's honesty yeah. on yeah, some yeah, level. Yeah, yeah. I, I like those. And see that, th- that's interesting. That moment you just picked, that was an improvisation that then we scripted and shot. Because we were joking around doing the scene, and I would like in the rehearsals, I was stealing the plant. Yeah. And then he ran and chased that. This guy, Callum, is a great actor, this Canadian guy, yeah. Callum Keith Rennie. He's great. And he, he started busting my balls. And right. We, and we found a, a real moment. Right. And that's right. what you're always hunting for is a real moment where it doesn't feel scripted. That's weird. I felt what, that. Yeah. And what you're talking about is I know what you mean when the movie gets into the more straight up romance yeah. part, in a lot of ways they could be anybody sure because men and women fall sure. in love or men and women falling in love yeah. and the one guy asking a girl to marry him is, you know there's certain right losing it's what I love about Linklater's boyhood is he doesn't do any of those moments right. no, you, you no. know he just avoids any yeah. first kiss gone first yeah. losing virginity gone it's all the same folks yeah, yeah. we all know what that is yeah yeah well, yeah, well, the, but those still the, the 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 commitment to the character, like you know, once when Chet loses his shit, and you realize how fucking painfully insecure he is, and that you know the whole struggle to get to figure out how to learn the horn again, you know, after he got his teeth knocked out, that just the uh, the depth of his insecurity and his own self annihilation and how they were uh, sort of hand in hand was Dan, good. And see, I've spent my life around people like that, you know. <laughs> I mean, actors, actors, <laughs> musicians, yeah, um, yeah. people who are so passionate and then quickly turn you yeah. know they they turn on you um and i've just i've seen that over and over well, yeah again. because we all are looking for love and you know whether or not you can accept it or not that's you know that's your a whole journey. other yeah, yeah that's your you know plan. what i mean yeah. but but most most performers they want it yeah whether, whether they can handle it when they get it that's right but they do yeah, want it that's my life but let's like the, the relationship with Linklater. why do you think because like not unlike uh, you know Scorsese and De Niro and stuff. You seem to be his guy. You know, in 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 a lot of movies, like he he likes working with you. And, yeah, we and, made eight films together. I mean, that's yeah. a lot of movies. Yeah. So how did that that begin, and wh- why do you think you have this um, this symbiosis with him? Um, it's a little bit like any friendship or something. You, if you ask too many questions about it, yeah, you, right, d- sure. it kind of dissolves in your hands. You think there's a um, Texan connection? Do you think that there... Uh, yes, yeah. I do. I think that... Um, but for whatever reason, um, there was a like-minded sensibility. I mean, mm-hmm. we were very different people. I think that... Um, you He's know, a- I, I really don't know. The, I, I, I ask myself the same question. I know that I'm extremely... I feel fortunate because... Uh, it's a cool thing when you're young. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing I could wish for my kids more than to meet people of their generation that turn their brain on fire. And I remember Rick, uh, I had this theater company it was this, with this playwright, Jonathan Mark Sherman, we were doing one of his plays. And Anthony Rapp was this guy who was in Dazed and Confused. Now, Slacker had come out, but Dazed and Confused hadn't come out. And Rick came to our theater company to see this play, to see Anthony Rapp in it. Yeah. And we were all really young, you know, um, it's right around the day Slacker came out and then Reality Bites came out. And so it was kind of interesting for us to meet because he was like the Gen X director. Right. And I was like the poster boy of Gen X. Right. So when we, we shook hands, it was like, God, I guess we're supposed to meet. Huh? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. And does Gen X mean anything to you? Absolutely not. Does it mean anything to you? I don't even know what it means. You know, <laughs> I didn't even read that book and, yeah, yeah. and I didn't even know it was based on a book. What do yeah. you mean? And, uh, and so anyway, we went out, um, we went out and hung out all night one night 
during that whole play. And I did have the feeling that I've had, you know, with certain women in my life yeah. and certain friends. You know, when you meet someone, you're like, oh, I'm going to know this person yeah, yeah. for a long time. And right. You, you kind of... Just quick. There's an understanding. You just click and you just Unspoken, feel it. yeah. And I remember the rap party for Before Sunrise, the first film we did together. Yeah. We're in Vienna and World Cup had been on. It was summer. It was gorgeous. And I remember knowing when I left that rap party that I was... I wasn't done working with that person. Sure. You know, that we were just starting. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know why that is. And I don't know, you know, there might be a time when, you know, he and I don't work together for a while. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know what that'll be like. But I know that the, um, I know the friendship has, has been mutually beneficial. Well, I think, yeah, well, no, but I think he, uh, I think he gets you clearly. And he's a, it's, it struck me, you know, after I talked to him for like an hour and a half or so, they, he's a pretty, you know, straight shooter guy and a very earnest guy. And, in, you know, and he has a certain courage around how he wants to do things. And he, he's, he doesn't seem, he's a very no bullshit person. And it just seems like he's sort of tapped into your, you know, outside of your friendship, to your capacity to, to be open and vulnerable as a man you know, on screen because a lot of those roles require that. Mm -hmm. And I think he's, he's sort of like that. And it's not really, uh, the, the standard way of approaching, you know, a masculinity on screen. Like there's an honesty to it that you don't see a lot. And I think you can play it. And I think he, you know, he likes to, you know, really, you know, be honest about that stuff. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. And it's that honesty yeah. that feels like oxygen, doesn't yeah. it? Right. It's yeah. like when, yeah. when, it, and um, he doesn't try to be cool. Right. He doesn't try to be tough. Right. He just tries to tell the truth. Yeah. Whether it's about a woman or about being a parent or whatever. He's just trying to hunt for it. And um, one of the things I really like about him, and I think that other actors would love this too, because he's allergic to plot. Well, that's good though. You and, know, and I I hate plot. Yeah. It's such a. It's. I remember <laughs> I I got to do a play with Tom Stoppard, right? Yeah. And Stoppard once said this amazing thing that plot is this contract you have with the audience that the audience thinks they want it like when you think about your favorite movies or plays or things like that a lot of times you can't even remember what happened at the end sure like did Lawrence of Arabia win a big battle or no didn't idea. he I don't yeah. know but I love that movie what'd yeah. you love about it his eyes yeah. remember when he's standing right. on top of the train and his thing I just we remember moments in that plot is this fake thing that we create that's like the illusion that dinner's coming. Yeah, or that you, there's a there's closure. That, that there's going to be closure because life never gives you any closure, and it does at the end. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I know, I right. know, I hate that. But um, the point being is yeah. that what we like is the experiences. Yeah, and it doesn't really matter what happens. You know, yeah, yeah. whether it's boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy loses girl, boy meets you know what. However, it all. It's not what happens; it's how it happens. Yeah, it's the process. And, and Rick is just completely into how. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's a, that's a tremendous risk, and it, that's what's amazing that, you know, outside of the device of boyhood, that, you know, it got the attention it got because it was all about those feelings and about the process and about life and about, you know, the moments that have no bearing on, on plot or anything else. It was like, a, it's almost like a meditation. I mean, like, when you watch that movie, it's kind of mind-fucking. What was your experience watching the full film after 10 years of... Of, yeah, 12 years. It's bizarre to know that these characters are moving through this time in real time. It's 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 mind-blowing. To watch yourself age? Well, it just... <laughs> it, it, there's this lie we all tell each other all day, which is that time isn't happening. Right. It's happening. Yeah. We're all dying this second I and the know. next second. And I'm already nostalgic for when we started this interview. <laughs> uh, and, 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 well, that's and, nice. And it's... It, it, 
Yeah, but here's the thing. You know, when I was going down the rabbit hole thinking about Chet Baker, right, yeah. and listening to Miles Davis yeah, yeah. and listening to all, all this stuff, I thought a lot about what they were going for with the whole idea of the discipline of jazz and the freedom of jazz, right. of what they're going for. And that's what watching Boyhood was like to me, is that there's this immense discipline in the architecture of what Rick's doing. I'm going to take the grid, the actual grid of high school, first grade, second grade, and I'm going to make a movie about this grid. But inside this grid is going to be this life just popping and popping. Yeah. In the, I read, the, it was a great, I found one, you know, at 3 a.m. online searching, I found some interview with Chet in Norway, like in 1983, when right. he had a cold. And, you know, you can find this stuff. And, and it was a radio interview. And he was talking about how sad he is when he watches jazz musicians pretend to improvise. Right. That they, <laughs> they, they do, oh, here's my solo where I'll improvise. But it's the same. It's like they've written it. Yeah. And he says what he really loves to do is go throw himself out, throw himself out, and then find his way back into the melody. And just, right. And that it's this con continual process of hurling yourself against the universe and trying to find some order. Yeah. Y you know? Right. And, and I felt, I really moved by that because I feel like that's what we're all doing every day. Right. Like, okay, I'm going to like go get coffee today and see what happens. Yeah. You know? And, um, I, but not everybody looks at that at it that way. A lot of people are just sort of like, "This is what I do every day, I and I hope the fuck that didn't that nothing weird happens." <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> but then there are those of us who are like, "I hope something weird happens." Cause, yeah, you know, I know. Because it's getting a little tired. Yeah, yeah. He has this thing that I think is what he's not the greatest singer in the world. He's not the greatest trumpet player. But when he plays, if you watch. Almost Blue, or you listen to his yeah. last performance live at Tokyo. He plays Elvis Costello's Almost Blue. Yeah. It's magnificent, but you're not sure if he's going to live through the performance. Right. And you're not, and a lot of times when you listen to him sing, you think, is this good yeah. or is this bad? Yeah. But whatever the answer is, you're moved. It's real. It's, it's real and it's moved. And I put a line in. In the in the movie that was a line of his when somebody was saying, in the movie Dizzy says, "Hey, you got to stop this singing stuff," because people always said that to him, you know. Yeah. And he, he, but he says it's true. It may not be good, but there's no lies in it. Yeah. Right. There's no lies, and and Chet had a lot of problems and a lot of you know. Uh -huh. and, but when he was performing, it was without. It was void of lies. Yeah. And that's I think just the fragility of it all. Yeah. It's almost like he he doesn't pretend to even care. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just, here it is. Make of it what you will. Yeah, there was, there's some moments in that movie around drugs and around his decisions and around, you know, his uh, stubborn uh, uh, commitment to just being the way he was. Like, you know, it's going to be sort of jarring for some people to, to see you laying on the floor with a needle hanging out of your arm for a minute, not knowing whether you're dead or alive. But the weird thing about that scene is that once you come out of it and you get the thing out of your arm that, you know, she don't leave. That, see, like, a lot of people don't understand that dynamic of sick relationships. That, like, you know, she was, like, going to stay there and, and pull you out of that thing. That's crazy. And then he used a device of meeting on the set of a movie about Chet Baker. Well, and, that's actually – it is a device, but that really happened. Right. You know, like, what was – Dino De Laurentiis approached Chet after he'd done this jail stint in Italy. Would he play himself in a movie? And I think that – that's what got me on the hook of playing this part. The yeah. idea that I could actually play Chet Baker playing himself. Yeah. That, it's, yeah. that seemed very bizarre. Well, there was another line that, like, there's these weird moments in the movie that sort of struck me as, as sort of strangely genuine where, uh, 
where the uh, where you're in the movie within a movie and you do dope for the first time. And then, like, there's a cut, and you go, like, wouldn't I be throwing up? I think I'd be throwing up. <laughs> I, I, I was like, this is so fake, man. I sh- you... There should be puke everywhere. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> was that in the script? No. <laughs> that was... I love it, because what it does is it lets you, the audience, know, hey, look, biopics are fake. Right. Okay? Yeah. What we're trying to get is at some truth that's beyond, like, if you want to study Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, you can. It's called Wikipedia. Yeah. You can find out exactly what happened. We're trying to tell you a story that might be relevant. I mean, the dream is that it will be relevant larger than just yeah. the facts of an individual's yeah. life. Yeah. You know, I mean, Chet Baker is not, he didn't, change music he's not miles davis he's an interesting human being right who happened to be extremely talented but you know is did he create bebop no way you know nowhere near he kind of got labeled with the california sound and yeah he got you know he he got that thing and he sold a lot of records because he was doing playing at a high level and he was white and gorgeous and accessible yeah he was accessible because he didn't play as fast he was really interested in melody in a way if you you listen to art pepper he was a horrible rat he'd throw anybody under the bus to stay out of jail (laughs) that's what art said about yeah (laughs) well have you read straight time yeah uh is it straight time or straight life straight uh straight time it's right there it's straight life Oh, God, it's such a good Fucking book. Fucking insane. That guy, and that guy can write. Yeah, I know. There's passages in that book that are like well, I wonder, blistering. Yeah, uh, I wonder how much of it was Laurie, because Laurie's still alive, his wife, and they wrote yeah. it together. And it's what's funny about that book is it's by a sax player, a great sax player, but it's 350 pages about jail and dope yeah. and about 50 pages about, about sax. sax. Yeah, like, you know, the pages on sax are so good. Yeah, well, he, I, I used to read them on, on set, you yeah. know, because, you know, Hampton Hawes has another uh Raise up off me. I always get the titles. I've re- this is when you get old. You forget yeah, yeah, titles. I know, but raise up me. off me. Hampton Hawes. It's it's like Straight Time. Um, so good. Is it Straight Life or Straight Time? I keep saying it's it Straight wrong. Life. Straight I life. see it. Okay. Okay. It's good. on the I, second shelf down, right on the left. Next shelf over. Right there. Second shelf down in the middle. Oh yeah. No. Straight right. Life. You got this is a great library you have here. Yeah. Uh, a lot of those are aspirations. Yeah. I know. That's <laughs> like my <laughs> library. <laughs> So let's let's move up a little bit, and you know, one thing is interesting is that you worked uh, on Midnight Clear. You worked with Pete Berg, who I actually was my roommate briefly in Culver City before he started acting, and no now he's like, way. yeah, it's bizarre. You know, if I had to say, okay, well, yeah. I did a Midnight, and I hope Pete Berg listens to this because yeah. I think he'll find it funny. But um, is I did a Midnight Clear, wonderful, was really cool movie, interesting movie, yeah. interesting movie about World War II. And it's with Gary Sinise, mm-hmm. one of the founders of Steppenwolf Theater Company, one of my my heroes as an actor. Um, Kevin Dillon, great Ari Gross, um, myself, Frank Whaley, and Pete Berg. Of all those guys, yeah, who I we had a great time. I loved those guys. We yeah. had fun. If the one I would pick least likely to become a Hollywood big shot director, it would definitely be Pete Berg. <laughs> I picked him to be like a knucklehead. Uh, yeah. You know, he's such a jock. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's a you big, know? big I mean, personality. Real yeah. bully. <laughs> he is a bully. And if Pete Berg once um, threw me so hard across the room. I mean, I literally thought I was dead. I thought he broke my head. He put. He picked me up. We were, you know, it was one of those things where you're like, play fighting yeah and then yeah he kind of hit me across the jaw and i got pissed and then i punched him yeah and then he picked me up and threw me holy shit. across the room my head through wall i did I had to pay the some hotel fifteen thousand dollars oh because God. pete berg threw me through a wall and 
Um, but you know, it's fascinating. But he does. That guy has life in him. Man. Full of life, dude. He has life, and yeah, I'm so proud of and him. And he's a good director. Yeah, he's a good director, and he's out there doing swinging his own. Yeah, you know, playing by his own beat. Yeah, so. like he's uh, like you know he's. De- it's interesting that as a director, you know, he definitely has a style. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what his relationship. But is I just would have never thought. Would you have thought that? Why didn't I knew him briefly? Like I was living with Steve Brill. You know, Brill. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. it was me and Brill went to college together, and we'd done some writing together in college. And I moved out here the first time in like uh, I don't know eight, late eighties, and uh, and I stayed with Brill in an apartment in Culver City. And then Pete was Brill's friend, and then you know Pete needed a place to live, so I got moved to the couch and eventually left. But at that time, Pete was working on a doc. Believe it, he was doing some acting, but he he wanted to make a documentary about Prince. Like he had this big vision. <laughs> Like so, he had a lot of things yeah. going on in his mind. He did. He always did. He yeah. always did. <laughs> you know. Let's talk about a Training Day a bit, um, because that like that movie is a pretty astounding movie, and the experience of working with Denzel and having to play off that. Yeah, what? What? How did you prepare for that thing, man? Denzel, to my mind, yeah, is you know one of the greatest actors of our era, um, and. That doesn't even take into consideration the fact that he's had to overcome issues of race and deal with it. I mean, just by I can speak to how hard it is to be a dramatic actor. Yeah. All right. And I I don't have any obstacles. I mean, studios don't want to make dramas. Uh, And this guy is a world class movie star and a world class actor. Right. Right. I mean, it's really only the Brits that do that. Yeah. You know, where you can be a star and also like a a very serious actor artist, I would say. And Denzel is, you know, it's a it's a hurricane, it's a thunderstorm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a trying to <laughs> keep your composure um, and create with him. Yeah, you know, is is hard because he's a real powerful force. I I studied his movies before I did Training Day because I I, I just love his acting. Yeah, right? I just it's love great. It. And but I really noticed that he kind of blew everybody off the screen that right. he worked with, except Gene Hackman. <laughs> well, Gene's was, amazing. Yeah. So I, was, I watched he and Gene Hackman, and I was like, <laughs> okay, the trick is it's clear that Gene is not playing Denzel's game and Denzel's not playing Gene's game. And I just challenged myself. <laughs> like, you're watching game footage. <laughs> That's how I felt like. I, I watched that movie, and I thought to myself, all right, here's the trick, man. I have got to not care if this guy likes me. You got a Gene Hackman it. Yeah, I, I, I just I don't want to go to the Laker game with him. I don't want to go out to dinner. I don't want to be best friends. I'm sure he's got a best friend. I got a best friend. It's fine. I'm yeah. just going to do my job. This guy, and he worked hard to get me that part. Yeah. So I knew that, and I just put that in my hat, and I just tried to do, I just come on and not care if he liked what I was doing or not. Right. Um, because that's the trick with, the, the, the trap with other actors often is that if you're doing what they want you to do, what you're doing is making it easy for them. Yeah. And if you're making it easy for them, what you're doing is decreasing sparks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, you know, you're actually, it's like um, people say this idea about like run lines with your scene partner. I hate doing that because I don't want them, to, I don't want to get in some, like some habitual uh, reheated performance, uh-huh. you know, like where I want to have an actual creative act that you're right. witnessing. Right. And, and that's going to be interesting to watch. So, this idea that if you're making your scene partner happy that you're doing a good job, I, I don't think so. I, I think that you you want to have conflict. Yeah. And you, you have to stand up for the integrity of your person and they have to do that. And if the thing is written well, sparks will fly. Right. So that was my work on that movie. Wow. It was simply to try to 
Hold uh, your own. Yeah, and I tried to take the... You know, I'd done this movie tape with Linkletter, and I'd done Hamlet with Michael Amoreda, these two weird indie movies that year that I had a lot... Because there was no stress, there was no budget, they were low-level movies, I, I felt my confidence rising. Yeah. and Because I, I didn't feel people judging me, and I felt... Right. And I, cha- I tried to play a trick on myself. I just tried to imagine that I was on set in one of those movies, and... and Denzel has an amazing quality. You remember your senior year of high school, like after, you know, like the last month of you're walking through the halls and you don't give a shit what anybody thinks about you. Yeah, yeah. It's a great feeling, right? Yeah, yeah. That's how Denzel walks through life. (laughs) Right, right. And and I just tried to emulate it in my own way. Right, right. You know, and I feel like, okay, well, on the set of tape, I didn't care what anybody thought about me. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I said, I, I was in charge, so I'll be in charge here. Yeah. I'll let it go and see how it goes. Now, obviously, I'm not in charge, but at least I'll trick myself into having the confidence that I am. That's, it was good, right? You had yeah. a good time? I'm really proud of the film. Yeah, it's great. You know, it's hard to do. It's hard to make a mainstream Hollywood movie that also is a good movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I can't not watch it. I'll tell you that. And uh, and I loved it. I loved it. There's that scene where like where he he just tells you that you know you've got alcohol in your system, you got <laughs> yeah, angel dust, and just yeah. and you're just fucked. You think this is you think this is checkers? This is chess. <laughs> um, and uh, you know I just worked with Denzel and Antoine again. We just did a remake of the Magnificent Seven. Oh, I so saw I, that on the IMDb. That sounds fucking amazing. Yeah, it should be fun. You all, it's all in the cans. Done. Well, they're cutting it now. Yeah. And how Putting was the, the experience? Now. Well, it was a real swashbuckling western. I mean, we were sweating. I mean, a lot was, of you. It was a lot of us. It was a lot of horses. D'Onofrio, too, right? D'Onofrio. He's a great actor, Pratt. right? D'Onofrio's a great actor. Yeah, Jesus, yeah. man. So I had all these guys on set. You know, those are two of my favorite all-time actors, D'Onofrio and, and Denzel. And Den- oh, yeah. And, um, and Antoine trying to manage all of our personalities. Right. I mean, you can be sure there was, you know, and it's 104 you know, and we're all dressed in wool and with loaded shotguns. And Where are you shooting? We're at Louisiana and oh Santa Fe. Oh, my God. Santa it's, Fe's nice. Santa Fe's nice, yeah. I grew up in New Mexico. So uh, now working with Lumet on the last that uh, movie on be, Before the, the what is the Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. What what'd you take from that experience of, of dealing with that guy? Because he's a real, he's an actor's director, isn't he? Sydney, he was, it was like, it's words fail. Uh, yeah. I was, I was in his last film. He's 83 years old. That film is the work of a young man. That film is yeah. blisters with rage. It's angry. It's weird. Um, he is uh, such a great storyteller. He's always in service of the emotion, mm-hmm. not himself. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of directors, they just want you to notice them. Mm-hmm. He disappears. And I have to say, if, you take, if, if I could leave this interview with any one thing, is that everybody needs to watch Network again. Again. It's and with with the election that we're under right now, you cannot believe how prescient and yeah. relevant that film is. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> it's an incredible film. Oh yeah. And Sydney was a great artist, and getting to work with Phil and Marissa on a real New York movie with Sidney Lamet and the last days of his life was so exciting. And um, he, uh, I'll tell I'll tell you one great story about him. Phil and I. Went to him because we found out that he, in rehearsal, we found out that he was going to shoot it on digital video. Right. And we were so upset. We're like, he's a film guy. So yeah. like, when we went to Sydney and we said, hey, man, you know, let's, let's shoot this on film, man. Like all, like your other films, you know, like, uh, don't you want it to look like Dog Day Afternoon, you know? And, and, and Sydney's like, what about Dog Day Afternoon? Did you like the way it looked? Oh, you know, it's so raw and real. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You, and you like that? Yeah, you know, and, 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 he's, and he goes, what you're saying is you want it to look kind of vintage. Yeah. Cool, right? And we're like, yeah. yeah. He's, 
Wait 20 years. It will. <laughs> I made Dog Day as cheaply and frugally as possible, just like I'm going to make this film. And, and and you trust me, live a little while, wait 20 years, it's going to look great. It's going to be so retro, you won't even believe it. That's hilarious. And, uh, and you know, of course, he's right. They, they sure. just Linkletter just screened Before the Devil Knows You're Dead as kind of a 10-year anniversary for the Awesome Film Society. And we watched it again. And sure enough, it looks badass and old school. It looks like a vintage LP, you know? Right, right. That's hilarious. So what are you doing uh, stage-wise? you doing any of that? I'm trying to work together a production of Night of the Iguana, to be honest with you. Oh, really? Yeah, Tennessee's, yeah. You know, it's a great, great play, and um, it hasn't been done in New York in about 25 years, so I'm trying big to- Big cast, right? Yeah, pretty big. Yeah, so when you when you start to put together- I've, been, I've recently been uh, seeing plays because, um, uh, you know, Scott Rudin has been sort of championing plays, and he's, he's sort of- Got me to interview Annie Baker. Oh, cool. And he's going to have me interview, what's the guy's name? Stephen Karam? Is that the guy's mm-hmm. name who did The Humans? Mm-hmm. So I'm like sort of re-engaged a bit, or maybe for the first time in my life, engaged with, you with know, current theater. New York theater. Have you seen Hamilton? No, I got to see well, it. you got to see that. I, it's really been great to go back to the theater and, and see quality stuff. It's, it's, I forget, well, it's, anytime I go, I'm, I'm amazed, like the it, visceral. You get beyond technology. Yeah, yeah. It's so exciting, you know? I mean, it's like, it's for five minutes people aren't on their phones they're not like you actually have to be in a room and breathe the same air with another person right and be together and laugh together i when somebody comes up to me and they it happened to me just the other day um somebody said i saw you in um oh yeah they saw me in coastal utopia they said and it was and they remembered that there was a glitch with one of my props that this prop was this thing was broken and then and i remember i remember that day i remember that that actual specific performance whereas if you come up to say you like training day it's meaningful to me but i wasn't in the room when you watched it right right you see me in a play means we were there together yeah you know somebody shared that moment we shared that moment you remember the emotion of it i remember it's somebody i was doing um uh henry the fourth with kevin klein right and this amazing moment which is that i had to be dead and kevin klein was giving this beautiful soliloquy above me yeah and and somebody's cell phone went off right and you know, and he jumped a couple acts and said, "Is that the chimes of midnight? <laughs> we have heard the sounds of chimes." Of midnight. And everybody laughed. The problem is, I laughed too. Right. But I was supposed to be dead, and so my armor is just shaking as I'm laughing. And and it's kind of. And this person came up to me on the subway where yeah. it was like, and they were like, "I was there," and I, yeah. and we both started laughing about that right. moment. Great. And and that's theater. And when and look, when you go see a great play, a real look, there's bad stuff too. Yeah. But when you see a visceral, alive work of art, and it's happening right in front of you and it only it's only going to happen those few times right you're one of only a handful of people that'll see it that's it's like, right it's like seeing neil young at a tiny hundred seat house when he was not even supposed to go on right, right. he was just having a beer and he yeah. came up and i saw it yeah you know a great theater yeah. show is like that yeah yeah i mean when i, I saw previews of lynn manuel doing this hamilton i saw it and i literally didn't want to go right, right. It, was, it was when it was first in previews and my wife was like you gotta go we're going with this couple and I'm right like, oh, geez. the musical it's a me i hate musicals yeah. i said this thing starts and you felt like something was wrong. Like, it's not supposed to be this interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like, you can't, like, they're, they must not really be saying the lines. Right. You know, like, kind of the feeling you had where you, you, you've noted, like, two moments in the Chet Baker movie right. that really were based out of improv. Like, you right. feel that reverberation yeah, sure, of, sure. like, something, this is illegal right, shit yeah, I'm yeah, smoking yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. And, and theater can do that. Theater can do it like nothing else. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Like, even, like, I had this conversation with somebody the other night. I don't go to opera, and I don't go to a lot of musicals, but every time I go to a musical, just, if there's more than three people singing anywhere, I, I'm going to cry. I don't yeah. even know why. 
But like with opera, like I was talking to someone about opera. I've been to maybe two in my life. And what people don't realize about opera is that it's just people. It's, it's not amplified. You get this idea that it's a spectacle. But when you get there, it's like you can hear the wood in the instruments. You can hear you can them hear... step onto the stage. It's crazy. And you hear their voice. I know. And I saw I saw Gary Sinise's production of True West. Uh, was it True West he did? Yeah. Right? On Broadway? That's the. It was off Broadway. Um, and that's the production that made me want to be an actor. Really? Yeah, both. That production changed my life. Because like the, the night I saw it, you know that weird scene? It wasn't True West. No, that, that was the Cherry Lane where he was yeah, with, yeah, yeah. with uh, was Which it Daniel one? Stern or, or maybe who with played? John Malkovich. Oh, he played Mal- with Malkovich, right. No, the one he directed, uh, with Barry Child. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I saw Sinise directed, he directed Barry Child. And there's that scene where the guy comes in at the end with, with the, the corn. corn. Mm-hmm. And the night I was there, one ear of corn just started rolling down the stage <laughs> towards the audience. And there was no stopping it. And I was like, this is amazing. He's being upstaged by the corn. I know. But it the was- Pulitzer Prize just for naught. The corn is rolling. Exactly. I was in that production. You were? Yeah. Why don't I remember that? <laughs> because I probably wasn't in it when you saw it. I did the original production in Chicago. No, I saw uh, it in New, New York. York. Yeah, on Broadway. They moved it to Broadway and I couldn't come with it. But that was one of the, that that production. Um, I loved know, it. Oh, it's phenomenal. Gary's one of the great theater directors of our time. What's that guy that played the, that character? The, he's a Terry Chicago- Kinney. Wow, what an actor. Yeah. He's How's he doing? Fun. He's amazing. I haven't seen him lately. Oh, he's around all the time. He directs a lot of great theater. He's a, he's an incredible guy. Like I remember really realizing that he was an actor in that. That movie was okay, but The, the Firm? Mm-hmm. Remember the firm? Yeah, with he's Tom good. Cruise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where he's just sitting out there in the sprinklers. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. His leg. Yeah, <laughs> you're like, holy shit. You remember that image your whole life, don't right, you? Right, you do. I know. It, there's yeah. a lot of movies like that. All right, well, I got to let you go because All right, man. It, that was great. Thank you for coming. I had a great time. Thanks, buddy. Well, that was good. That was. I love that. Did you? He lit up about theater at the end. Lit up. Good guy. It was nice to talk to him. Decent fellow, good stories. Hope you enjoyed that. Go to WTFPod.com. See who's been on the show if you're curious. You can get hooked up with Pal.fm for the archive. You can email. You can get on the mailing list. Okay. Have some get some justcoffee.coop. You can do whatever you gotta do. Should I play some guitar? I didn't prepare anything. Boomer lives!